Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Professor Alex Wagner. Professor Wagner is one of the world's leading financial economists, a professor at the Department of Banking and Finance at the University of Zurich, and a senior chair of the Swiss Finance Institute. Our conversation covers three of Professor Wagner's research areas. The first one is a fascinating discussion around the impact of Donald Trump's election on stock prices. So Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and the stock market reacted and he did the empirical analysis to work out what happened. It's truly interesting. The second one is an unusual link between the great financial crisis in 2007, 8 and 9 and COVID deaths 15 years later. And he found there was a very strong connection between the two. And the final one, he investigated whether investors care about biodiversity. Biodiversity being a really important emerging topic in the investor world right now. So please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Professor Alex Wagner. Professor Wagner, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I was really intrigued by the various different types of research that you do when I was scanning through your website. And I thought before we go into some of the specific research points that you've covered, could you just provide some context in terms of your research interests and how you generally go about doing the research that you conduct? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'm a financial economist, but I have broad interests in, in all kinds of things that have to do with the economy, uh, finance, and, and human life in general. And so um, I think my colleague would describe my work as being rather undisciplined in the sense that uh, when I see a phenomenon in the real world, I do take the luxury of of trying to uh, get at it, uh, even if it's something that I haven't worked on so far. But nonetheless, sort of looking back over the last 20 years of, of doing work on a variety of topics, I think there's a few common denominators. One is I'm interested in empirical uh, work, uh, so I try to understand how financial markets actually work by looking at data. Um, I'm interested in how uh, financial markets and companies communicate with each other, so how do financial market participants learn uh, uh, some something new from what companies do. And I'm also uh, very much interested in special events, so large events that have a major impact where we can see things shifting around. Uh, and, and then I think we can learn a lot about how the economy works for those events. Excellent. One of the questions I'll ask you later is how did you arrive at the question in the first place of doing a particular research? Because some of the things that we're going to cover are not conventional connections that you've made, I think. So I think it's very interesting to see how you arrive, your thought process about how you arrive at the research question in the first place. But I've got some specifics later on that I'll, okay, I'll cover. I'll be interested to reflect on that. <laughs> yeah, it'd be really good. So um, this is going to what I think going to turn out to be a mini masterclass of your research. I think we're going to, and we're going to cover as many as we can in the time that we've got. Um, and um, I want to start with the one that analysed the election of Donald Trump in 2016. It's very topical, clearly, because we have the US elections later on this year. Donald Trump is looking like he's going to be a candidate. And you studied the impact of his election, which was seen by many and by the financial markets as a bit of a shock on the um, share price of, of companies. So can we go into that one first? Can you just explain what you were trying to find out and how you went out went about it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, this is one of the sort of events that I alluded to earlier. It's a big event in multiple ways. First, it's an event that was rather surprising. So um, as you know, you look back in time, it's been a few years and a lot has happened since then. Uh, but as we went into the US presidential election of November 2016, uh, there were two candidates that were uh, running for office at the end. After all, smoke had been cleared from the prior rounds, so Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And 
by and large, uh, most pundits predicted that Hillary Clinton would win. Also, the so-called prediction markets, which have estimates of probabilities of events happening, were heavily in favor of a Clinton win. And then the unforeseen and unexpected happened. Uh, it was not a zero probability that Donald Trump would win, but it was a low probability. But he did win. So when we woke up on the on the morning after the election, uh, the world has changed because suddenly we have uh, a new president-elect in the United States, which, and that's the second part of the event, has vastly different policy views and approaches to the economy, also to other issues, but in particular to the economy, than Hillary Clinton. So those differences extend to corporate tax policy, they extend to climate and environmental policy, they extend to trade policy and foreign relations, and so on and so forth. And so this event, uh, from a, a financial market researcher perspective, uh, is very interesting because two things coincide, big probability on, you know, change or perception change and differences in opinions or, or, or uh, uh, policy views. And so it's a natural question to ask, well, how does that matter um, to companies and what can we learn from the stock price reactions of companies? The way the market works and you have allowed me to, as in your intro, to make this a little bit of a masterclass, but that the way the market works, and that's what's so fascinating to me, is it's like a crystal ball. It processes information looking into the future. The stock price of a company today is the discounted future and present value, the discounted future of all future cash flows. So what that means, taking to this event, you have a big change in expected future corporate tax policy. Financial theory says, well, that should not only play out in the long run, but right when that change in expected tax policy happens, we would see it in stock prices. And so we had that hypothesis and we analyzed it and we found that indeed, right after the election, stock prices of companies adjusted accordingly. And how do you go about answering a question like that? So uh, as an empirical researcher, our approach here is to collect data from a large number of companies. So in this case, it's, it was the Russell 3000 index, which has, as the name suggests, roughly 3000 companies in it. These are listed companies where one can observe not only the stock price, but also a lot of other information that these companies have to disclose. So sticking with the tax uh, example, listed companies in the US and elsewhere have to disclose what kind of taxes are they paying, what are the tax rates, and so on. We also know lots of other important factors, like the size and the revenue growth of these companies, and so on and so forth. And then the, the basic idea is actually pretty simple. In a, around such an event, you make a model, it's an assumption, but based on, on some uh, statistical model, how the stock price of each company would have developed in the absence of the event. Then you see what actually happened and the difference between what actually happened and what would have happened in the absence of the event is the effect of the event. And so roughly, it's, it's actually a very straightforward methodology and that's also why I like it because it's simple but powerful. It the, Looking at for example, companies that had paid high taxes going into the election and those that had already paid low taxes, the hypothesis is that high-tax companies would benefit more from a Trump election than low-tax companies because they had more likelihood of bringing their taxes down into the future. And indeed, we, we found that effect. Now, it's a reasonable comment on, on this approach is, well, uh, isn't that kind of obvious? Don't we know already that corporate taxes are important for firm value, right? I mean, there's lots of talk about it. And the answer to this is, yeah, on a theoretical level, we know it, but we have rare opportunities to actually study quantitatively how much investors actually care about taxes. And so for that, you need an event like this, where you have a shock to tax policy, um, and a powerful shock at that. 
So that's the basic approach. Overall, this approach is called an event study because it's an event and we study the event. So one of the things that piqued my interest is that you created a model that essentially forecasted what the share prices would do had the event not happened. Yes. Yeah. That sounds like a very useful thing to be able to do. So so how would you go about doing that to create your baseline for the comparison? Absolutely. So indeed, the, the so-called normal return or baseline return, actually it's a much more, uh, it's much better terminology as, as you use it here. Um, this is a critical element of this um, kind of study. Fortunately, when you look at short-run developments, so from one day to the next, it's actually in expectation, relatively easy, because basically you can say, well, the a, a single company is going to, in expectation, move as the market moves, adjusting maybe for its exposure to the market in the first place. So let me parse that. We're standing after the election, we do observe how the overall aggregate market, let's say the S&P 500 market developed. It's not like we are standing here today, it's the January 12th of 2024. Uh, for our listeners here to, to put that into context also, uh, we, we, the, in this academic setting, we are not predicting what will happen with the stock price on a day that we never observe so far. So we are not looking into end of January 2024 from today, but we're looking at November 2016, when the election took place, how would have the companies developed? And there, we do know how the overall aggregate market would have moved. And assuming that individual stocks move in the past relative to the aggregate market would also project into the future, you can use that as a way of fixing also the baseline return for each individual company. But it's a very important uh, point to state, yeah, that's an assumption, right? If by the virtue of the event itself, the dynamics of these companies completely change, then maybe your baseline return uh, would be off. Um, that's a problem of the event study, but it's one that is very hard to overcome. You have to assume something in order to uh, make that comparison between what actually happened and that uh, baseline return. Absolutely. That baseline return model, I don't know what you called it, sounds like it could be incredibly valuable in a, in a, normal, in a normal situation where there aren't these events happening because yeah, can... yeah yeah i mean and, and there's lots of sorry there's lots of attempts at doing this right from financial light practitioner and practitioners try it all the time uh looking forward but if you don't know how the overall market develops then it's very hard because then you're stuck with only doing one individual thing um it's certainly also easier but that would be fine for a trader to project into the short run so one day two day or so it's much harder and much more noisy as you go into, you know, 20, 30 day quarter or whatever. Absolutely. And what did you find from the research? So we did find uh, that stocks with high exposure to corporate taxes, in other words, high, high tax stocks benefited from the election of Donald Trump because the market anticipated a reduction in the statutory uh, tax rate. And indeed, it did happen right, right after uh, he came into office, he started uh, pushing this forward and that so-called Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, about one year later then actually led to a uh, corporate tax cut. And so we did find that this was a major value driver for companies. And so this is one of the uh, uh, insights of our papers, paper here that corporate taxes do matter for corporate value. Um, a second thing that may also be very relevant to uh uh, many listeners, I hope at least, is in a related study, we looked at the climate uh, dimension of companies. So Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had very different views on that. Hillary Clinton, uh, rather in favor of, of climate policy. Donald Trump, rather a climate skeptic. He appointed Scott Pruitt as head of the Environmental Protection Agency. And uh, Scott Pruitt is a, was a clear 
um, climate skeptic to head that agency. Um, so there, uh, actually, the, the findings and our hypothesis are a little bit more subtle. So this this is where financial markets are so fascinating. I think. On the one hand, you would say, well, okay, if a climate skeptic gets elected, that's clearly good news for, let's say, coal companies, because they're going to have less regulation and they're going to be able to make uh, more use of their resources. And that we do find. But we also found that so-called climate-responsible companies benefit. A climate-responsible company is, is a company that actually has strategies or actions in place to reduce their own or other companies' future emissions. So there's an important distinction here between being dirty right now or clean right now, if I may use that short abbreviation, and on the other hand, looking into the future, does a company already have strategies in place? And so we find both. We find that the heavily polluting, carbon-emitting stocks benefited short run. But we also find that upon Donald Trump's election, the climate-responsible ones that have these strategies in place for the longer run also benefited. And that's more puzzling, right? At first, you might say, well, how, how can that be? I mean, you get, you get a clear climate skeptic in the White House. Why would financial markets react by pushing up the price and the perceived value of those climate responsible stocks. And the answer we, we give in our study is that long-term institutional investors take a long-term view, meaning that they, at the time of the election, impounded a certain probability that Donald Trump would have a four-year term. But then after that, and, and little climate policy would happen then, but after that, another candidate would have would come in and there would be a boomerang effect. There would be harder and faster climate policy. And so it would be a good idea to already get into the climate responsible stocks now in order to benefit from that long run boomerang. It's a fairly sophisticated story, but financial market participants are sophisticated. They look into the future. And that's one of the takeaways of this study that the stock price does reflect the far future, especially for longer run uh, investors. And in, in some sense, it's also a positive news because it says the financial market gives a signal to policymakers, hey, we do expect future climate policy to happen, uh, even if there's intermittent policy failure now, if you want to call it that, if that's, that's the view you're taking, there's intermittent policy failure in the long run, we do expect it. Uh, to have. So that, those were two of the major findings, taxes and climate policy, really. That's very interesting. So it sounds like that where there is a significant long-term force or trend like climate change, investors are more likely to bet with the trend than they are the event. Is that a bit, is that a good way of summarizing what you found? I think that, that yeah, that's that's a that's a neat way of of, of summarizing that. And, and I mean, just to be clear, it's it's uh, with the benefit of um, doing research. You know, one has the time to process all this and look at different angles. Uh, a financial market participant, a trader, has to make up their mind in the moment, basically. You know, how how are you going to position yourself as these events un un uh, unfold and for that, I think your intuition here is very um, good. They, they would rely also on, okay, what are the deeper underlying trends? Um, and it's only the long-term oriented uh, institutional investors that we found did think of those trends versus the ones that anyways focus only on the next quarter or next year. They, for them, those trends are not not that relevant. Right? Yeah. I think, I think it's worth just doing a, a small sidebar conversation about why share prices change. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that's a kind of a key indicator for, for you to work out. So I try and summarize it and you, you tell me whether I'm wrong or not. Um, so I think I think essentially it's a supply and demand situation. So if you've got a, a company where the investors think that they're going to benefit from the tax regime of Donald Trump, they're more likely to buy. And if they think they're not going to benefit, they're more likely to sell. That creates a disconnect between the number of buyers and sellers of that individual stock. And that changes the price of the stock uh, and therefore provides the data 
that helps you ascertain whether or not taxes are important to in- investors. Is that a layperson's way of describing how it works? I, I think that's a that's a good way of describing how it works. I think it's the, the, there's there's important elements in there uh, that are correct. If I if I'm and one can also do a full stop here and say yeah okay. Now that we're talking about it, we take the luxury uh, to to elaborate a little bit. Um, there's maybe two wrinkles I want to add to that. One is uh, just by overview. One is the question of so cash flows can have an effect, but also risk changes can have an effect. I want to talk about that briefly. And the second one is it's not actually the number of people necessarily, or even the average view, but there is the so-called marginal investor that really plays a major role. So let me start with the second point. A price in the financial market is not, it's not happening by looking at what do all the people uh, uh, want, but it's happening by looking at what do the, what does the final investor, the last investor who's just indifferent between buying and selling the stock what is the valuation of that person for this stock? Okay, so if you and I are trading, um, there may be thousands of other investors who are at the moment not involved. They may have a view, but you and I, we are the ones, you are just thinking, yeah, I'm happy to sell the stock to Alex at this price. And I'm saying, I'm just willing to buy the stock at this price from Ian. And that's going to be the stock price that comes. It's not necessarily the overall aggregate supply or demand, but just the final guys. So in other words, so we, we, these marginal investors, we don't know who they are, but the basic assumption in financial market research is that these are sophisticated investors. These are investors who are really trying to get every last ounce of information to see whether the stock price should move a tiny little bit this way or that way. And that's the basic assumption why these stock prices are so informative because they come not from some overall, maybe naive, noisy uh, uh, view, but from sophisticated investors. That's not always true. I mean, there are clear cases where you have stock prices moving. If you think back to the meme stocks, uh, frenzy and so on, where the non-sophisticated investors carry the day. But by and large, around these events, you would think that sophisticated investors matter. Marshall versus the overall demand and supply. That's kind of one important insight. And the second one, which maybe we talk about later when we talk about uh, another application of this, what happens around big events. So I want to just briefly talk about it uh, conceptually is the Donald Trump event of being elected in in November 2016. um, Most of the change of stock prices and the two examples I gave, we have attributed to changes in expected future cash flows of companies. So corporate taxes going down leaves more money on the table for shareholders. Climate policy changing, more money or less money for some shareholders. That's a cash flow change. But the other important way in which a stock price can change is if the risk perception changes. So if by some event, the the riskiness of a stock goes up or down, that will also affect the stock price. We can maybe later talk about an example of that. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. You're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please rate and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much. Now, back to the episode. Okay, let's do a different piece of research that you covered and this is this is actually this this piece of research is is how i found out about your work in the first place where you you shared um what you termed to be the long global financial crisis which i think is a play on words on on, on long covid so here you studied the relationship between the 2007 to 9 global financial crisis and covid and the effect on healthcare and covid deaths now, that's a really interesting connection, which I think not many people would have even considered making. So I think some of the listeners may not even remember or have experienced the financial crisis. So it would be great if you could spend a minute or two just reminding us 
what happened in 2007, 8 and 9. But then before we go into the research itself, it would be really helpful, I think, to understand how did you arrive at the question in the first place? Yes, thank you. Thank you for um, you know noticing that uh, that work. I actually think it's um, it's one of my more important pieces of work in the in the big scheme of things. Uh, it's it's an exception to the rule I, I, or the basic uh, analysis I've mentioned at the beginning. It's not a financial market paper per se, uh, but it's more about the general uh, economy. Uh, so, what's the background here? Um, in 2007, 2008, the so-called global financial crisis unfolded with massive uh, impacts, not only on financial markets, as the name might suggest, but actually for the real economies. When we, as financial economists, when we talk about the economy, we distinguish between financial markets and the real economy. Financial markets are also real; they're not virtual. But the real economy means the actual production side uh, of things and the consumption by by people. And so in many parts of the world, particularly in the United States, certainly also in Europe, the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 2009 had massive impacts on the GDP, gross domestic product, on uh, individual well-being. Um, and so you, you, when it's talking about uh, uh, losses in, in GDP relative to trend values of Full percentage points and, and maybe double-digit percentage points in, in certain places. So massive, massive. Fast forward, uh, starting in 2020, really, we started realizing, oh, there's this, this pandemic um, happening. And uh, talking with my uh, colleague, Stephen, here at the Department of Banking and Finance, uh, one day when we were able to get together again after uh, some, uh, some lockdown events, we, we sort of started thinking, well, uh, is the way in which some economies are able to deal with a crisis like a pandemic, uh, is that, how does that have to do with what these economies have experienced in the past? And actually, it didn't take us very long to develop the hypothesis. Well, maybe it's simply a fact that some economies uh, had decided to downscale their health capacities after they had experienced an economic crisis where they had to save money, basically, and that now this is coming back to haunt them. That was based our hypothesis from the get-go. Uh, also, you can make the equivalent uh, notion maybe in the, on the individual level, right? If one runs into financial difficulties, one might start saving, of course, and when, where does one start saving? Well, one may start saving on the things that one doesn't need immediately. Uh, one, one thing that might be people save on is maybe they reduce their health uh, coverage, uh, health premium coverage, they might reduce their, uh, uh, their subscription to the gym, and, and so on and so forth, right? And so this is effectively the story we have in mind also for the macroeconomy. Um, and so we set out to study the simple hypothesis whether th that countries or also regions and states that had suffered more from the global financial crisis 2007-2008-2009 would also suffer more from COVID. And the suffering in COVID, we actually operationalized that as how many deaths relative to number of cases did a country, region, or state have in the early phase of COVID-19 when little other interventions were there, when there was no vaccine yet, and so on and so forth. And to cut the long story short, we find a strong connection between the two. So we do find that although there are other factors that influence how a country performed in the COVID period health-wise, uh, but there is a link between how an economy fared in the financial crisis and how it fared uh, in COVID-19, in particular states and countries and regions that had more uh, drawdown of uh, GDP in the 27 to, uh, 2007 to 2009 period, they suffered more deaths during COVID. How did you go about answering that question? It's an empirical question that we needed data 
uh, for. And the data are actually, uh, although straightforward, but they needed to be collected from a number of different data sources. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that we had very good active uh, younger co-authors on this paper who uh, went out and collected not only the GDP and economic shock data from 2007, 2008, but also data on COVID deaths and, and cases. Um, we decided to study this, for example, not only on a country level, but also within Spain, where there's very good data on the different provinces in, in Spain. Um, so we had a Spanish co-author who had access to all those data. We collected data on temperature and average temperature because that affects how in the, in the spring of 2020, uh, different, the spread of the virus was happening in different areas. We collected data on health capacity directly. So our important channel that we had in mind was bad uh, experience in the 2007-2009 crisis leads to cutting down health costs, cutting down health expenditures, I mean, cutting down the number of hospital beds, basically, and then that reduction hospital beds would lead to a lack of capacity when pandemic hit. That's the causal chain we have in mind. And so we needed data on those hospital beds and especially the special kinds of hospital beds that you needed to treat this particular case. So fortunately, uh, most governance, both local and, and national, disclose those things, but one needs to collect them, put them into a usable format. And then effectively, we run what's called a regression model. So a, re a statistical regression model tries to explain the number of COVID deaths with the number of factors, including the past performance in the financial crisis. And as I said, we found some um, pretty strong connection there. And the implications of it, you've you've kind of alluded to, but it'd be great to discuss what's the what's the big picture here that the that governments and policymakers should be thinking about as a result of the findings that you that you had. Yeah, so um the the big picture I think is to uh, keep in mind as as a policymaker a the importance of preparing for the unforeseen and unforeseeable that's in some sense kind of obvious but especially when one crisis hits then it's easy to focus on that one and sort of forget that there might be consequences of certain ways of dealing with this crisis so we also did a back of the envelope calculation of you know economically of course the tragic of human death is, is hard to quantify but if one tries to uh, a tragedy of human death is hard to quantify, but if one tries to quantify it, um, there are ways to value the so-called statistical life. I mean, it's always a difficult notion, but for some calculations, one has to do that. And we found that it was actually a good idea to keep reserve beds all the time. I mean, that, that is costly, right? You have excess capacity. You have empty hospital beds for a very long time until the point when you need them and you know then they're not then, then they're not empty so although this is not a final calculation but a simple calculation i think these sorts of calculations are essential for policymakers to make how much should we invest into the unforeseen unforeseeable that's one policy implication and the other policy implication is um avoiding a financial crisis is not all does not only have the benefit of sort of safeguarding financial wealth, yeah, right? Of course, in the financial crisis, we had massive stock price drops and people's financial wealth was wiped out. But as our study shows, it also can have very long-term health consequences. So wealth and health are closely connected. And so finding ways for policymakers to ensure that uh, a financial crisis does not unfold uh, is very important because you you might come around uh, and and have a bad non-financial crisis where you need uh, financial resources to deal with it in the end. So those are what I would think are two 
uh, interesting implications of this study. Excellent. And just going back to the study itself, were you able to normalize for differences between countries? So some countries had different um, approaches to dealing with the pandemic early on. They were, they were kind of, people were using lockdowns, but Sweden were known for having a slightly looser rules to some of the other European countries as, as an example. But also there are other dimensions like, I understand Italy was affected particularly hard because it's got some aging kind of population. It's got a slightly different demographic structure compared to some other countries. And there are other factors at play that are, in a sense, independent of the healthcare situation and what happened during the financial crisis. So how did you account for those differences? Thank you. So the, 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 the just a basic uh, uh, approach one tries to do in a study like this is to try to control for or account for other factors that might confound any uh, connections if one just takes two factors. I think I gave the example of temperature differences. That would be one. But temperature is maybe just it's an interesting control variable, uh, but it's in some sense less of a concern because it's less likely to also be correlated with the financial crisis itself, right? But but there are other things like how does how the how effective is the government overall that might have to do with the financial crisis, right? If they not only cut down health expenditures, but also in general, government capacity to communicate, uh, to uh, allow different uh, parts of the government to interact, which was important during COVID, then our story might still be true. You find the correlation between past uh, crisis, economic crisis and COVID deaths, but it may not be through the health channel, but it may be something else. So to take care of this example and others that you have raised age structure and so on, we try to put in a bunch of control variables. So we have something for the change in measures of government effectiveness, according to some established scores between the financial crisis. And now we have some age controls. We have some overall GDP and wealth controls for, for a country. Uh, we have a number of other things, what we did not put in as um, a control variable is anything about how did the country actually implement policy in the COVID period, because we look at the period before any policies were actually taken. So our study extends only to the very early phase of COVID-19, the pure phase, if you will, no vaccine, no lockdowns just at the very early phase, but when, or not, no major, major lockdowns. I mean, of course, Italy lockdown in February was an early one, but in, in, in Spain, it came later to try to get at a relatively pure effect uh, rather than commingling with other things that may have gone on later on. So the, in other words, the, I, I don't think we would find much if we were to extend the, the, the whole COVID period, that would be co-founded by too many other factors. Okay, and and the findings, so you've got a quantitative model, a regression model that has the various variables that you think are important that essentially demonstrate that there is a strong relationship between the variables that you're interested in. How do you then go to the next step of theorizing the whys behind what the data is saying? Yeah, so exactly. So we have this first level correlation, if you will, between past crisis performance and the health performance in COVID-19. And then we had this hypothesis in mind that, well, this is through the health uh, through, through the uh, health system or health expenditures channel. So we, we turned this into a so-called two-stage regression model. So rather than having just a one stage from 2007, 2008 to COVID, we do an intermittent state or interim state stage where the performance in 2007-2008 explains how health expenditures and in particular how the availability of beds changed, hospital beds. And then in the second stage, that change of the hospital beds is used to explain the COVID performance, in, this, in other words, the number of COVID deaths relative to cases. And so this is, while still it's not a, you know, it's not perfect as a, as a measure of a causal chain, but 
that way you get a bit of a feeling, okay, what is the possible linkage between the rather remote uh, two pieces uh, 15 years ago and uh, corporate or company performance, or, sorry, economy performance and, um, and the health performance in the end. So breaking it down into smaller pieces is kind of the empirical approach here. Okay, very clear. All right, let's go to a different topic. Um, biodiversity and do investors care about it? Which I know, which I know is one that you are um, quite excited about. So, could you just explain the research? What you know, what was the question you were seeking to answer? Yeah. Well, so maybe our listeners are beginning to wonder. Okay, uh, you know, what's up with this guy? Uh, first, he, <laughs> he, he does uh, Donald Trump's election stock prices. Then he does uh, COVID nineteen uh, cases and deaths. And now it's, there's biodiversity. Believe it or not, there is actually a connection here. Um, so bi- biodiversity, first of all, is a definition. Biodiversity is is kind of the variety of all uh, human of, of all living organisms. Um, and biodiversity, or sometimes nowadays it's also called is uh, called natural capital. That's more the financial market perspective already. But I'll stick with biodiversity. Biodiversity is extremely important for uh, ecosystems, services, and for our human welfare. So many of the things that we need in daily life actually have to do with a sufficiently rich degree of biodiversity. Pharmaceutical products require biodiversity. Uh, Droughts and floods happen more likely if there's a lack of protection by uh, a rich biodiverse setting if you have if there's fewer corals or only young corals then you get more floodings in coastal areas uh pollination is an important aspect for agriculture and so on and so forth so that it is estimated that around half of world gdp half of world gdp is affected by the current ongoing <clears throat> fast loss uh, of, of biodiversity uh since the 1970s that loss has been quite dramatic, uh, depending on which source you consult, uh, 60% of um, species have been basically disappearing. And it's not just the number of species, but also the variety that uh, one has to care about. Now, this first, the connection with, with the pandemic is there are links in the national sciences literature that suggest that uh, pandemics are more likely to occur when there's a lack of biodiversity because then there's closer connection between certain um, uh, animals and, and humans than, than there would be otherwise in the presence of richer biodiversity. Um, so that's another factor that influences the economic uh, performance. Somewhat strikingly, and that's where the finance angle comes in, Despite the huge potential importance of this topic for the economy and therefore also financial markets, there's been very, very little research on it. This is, on the one hand, surprising. On the other hand, it's it's understandable once one starts thinking about it. It's surprising on the one hand because climate finance, so the impact of the changing climate on companies and what companies can do to mitigate it and what role finance plays there has been a huge area of research uh, in finance and economics. But in some sense, although it's a complex topic, a climate is easier because there you have one key measure, carbon emissions. That is basically has been perceived by uh, natural scientists and therefore also by social scientists as the key factor. And it might come from in different forms, it might be the burning of coal, uh, CO2 directly, or it might be methane from agriculture, but in the end, some sort of greenhouse gas emissions. Bio, and it's a global problem. So it doesn't matter where you emit, basically. In the end, it all comes down to the greenhouse gas uh, concentration overall. Biodiversity is a local and global problem. It's global in the sense that I just described, but the effect is always a local one. It doesn't matter where a plant is being built. It doesn't matter where a mine uh, is being uh, dug so that you can get certain raw materials. And it's much harder to measure what the impact of 
a firm is on biodiversity and therefore it's potentially harder to price that. So that's kind of the reason on the one hand why it's important and B, why uh, uh, people have not dealt with it so much. So in, in very recent work, uh, we've written, uh, I, I dare say, uh, one of the very first academic studies on the link of corporate biodiversity footprint and equity prices. And if you're interested, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about that. But you have to tell me more. I'm absolutely interested. So what did you find? So this, the, the punchline is a biodiversity footprint premium has emerged. That's the one sentence summary, but I need to parse that sentence. And I want to link it back for those listeners who have been on this whole thing. Very Earlier on, I talked about two ways in which stock prices move in response to your uh, question. One is expected cash flow changes. But then I said that there's uh, the other channel, which is risk changes or perceived risk changes. And this paper and this study actually is very much on that second type. So like, I, I do want to take a minute to, to uh, framing this correctly. So think about investing in a stock. And let's say that the cash flows are, the expected cash flows are, are given and we're not going to move them. And now when the perception of riskiness of that stock goes up, then naturally you would be, I hope that would be an intuitive reaction, you would be inclined to say, well, now that stock is worth less because it bears higher risk. I, it, it's worth less now. I'm willing to pay a lower price to buy that stock. Or equivalently, if I buy it, I want to have a higher return from buying that stock. I want to be rewarded for taking that extra risk. Okay, So this is a very important notion that the price you're willing to pay and the return you're expecting to get from an investment like a stock, these two are move inversely. right? So, so this is very important to keep in mind in general. It's a general notion, mechanical almost, but it's also relevant to the biodiversity thing. So our research question is, does the biodiversity footprint of a company, of a range of companies, is that reflected in stock prices? And our hypothesis is that Recently, through the arrival of a number of policy events that push towards a potential regulation of biodiversity issues, the uncertainties for companies with a large footprint have increased, and hence investors have begin have begun to demand extra returns, a premium from large footprint stocks. Okay, so that's the basic hypothesis we have in mind. What, what are those events I'm talking about? There are two major ones that we talk about in the paper. One is uh, in 2021, the so-called Kunming Declaration was signed. It's an international agreement similar to the Paris Agreement for Climate Change. The Kunming Declaration proposes uh, a, a general worldwide consensus on protection of biodiversity and also some consequences like trying to make financial flows consistent with that protection. The second major event has been the launch of the so-called Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, TNFD. It's a, a corporate and public corporation that um, in tries to have has recommendations for companies how to disclose their biodiversity exposure. So those are two major policy events, but the point is there are no clear regulations yet. It's just that regulations are coming, but that increases the uncertainty for those stocks that have a large biodiversity footprint. So our hypothesis is that around those events, these stocks would suddenly be perceived as more risky should therefore suffer reduction in value and henceforth deliver, have to deliver larger expected returns for investors. So there's a number of uh, elements here, hypothesis, but I think it's a, it's a very natural um, basic way of, of 
conceptualizing. Now, the key point here is how does one measure the corporate biodiversity footprint? And I can only do this briefly now. There's actually quite a bit of detail that goes into this. We, we use a new data source <clears throat> that provides estimates of that footprint. And the basic idea of getting to footprints for thousands of companies, this is not a case study approach, right? We are trying to do this for thousands of companies, is to look for each company, what are their activities? So let's take a dairy manufacturer. Maybe you've had yogurt this morning when you listen to this podcast, you had some yogurt. That, that yogurt, if it's made from cow milk, it needed some cows that produce that milk. So milk is as a commodity. Agriculture has an impact on biodiversity because you know you have the cows, but you have some of the grace, the cattle grazes there, but you have less biodiversity there. And so there are estimates in the natural sciences literature, the so-called globio model, for example, that estimates how strong the impact of cattle grazing is on biodiversity. And so the name of the game here is for each company. I mean, this is a very detailed approach for thousands of companies to get at how many commodities do they need, which commodities do they need, where do they source them from, and what is the estimated impact on a measure of biodiversity from those commodities. And then finally, one needs to know, well, what's the damage that's being done by that? So for example, there's an estimate that to have thousand tons of cow milk, you need 30 square kilometers of space, 13 square kilometers of space. And the, but so that's the so-called environmental pressure. But then the second question is, well, how damaging is that pressure? And there are estimates from prior models that this damage is equivalent to reducing biodiversity by five percentage points over that area. We have to we take that and that goes into the data providers data that we get. And so at the end of the day, after quite a few assumptions, for each company we have a number of on what area, on, on what size and what damage did does that company create basically on a daily on a on a yearly level. And in the end, we then regress the stock returns of a company on that measure. Controlling again for many other factors, like you said before, the other study, we need to control for a bunch of things. In the end, we find stocks that have a larger footprint on the biodiversity, meaning they, uh, they destroy more biodiversity, roughly speaking. Recently, they have been receiving higher returns from investors. And that's not a dark message. You know, some people might say, oh, the bad stocks get rewarded by the higher returns. How can that be? The message here is these stocks are being perceived as riskier for the very reason that I alluded to before. So a biodiversity footprint premium has emerged. That's the current state. It's work in progress. So this is still developing, but that's the current insight that we've gleaned from that. And the consequences of that are pretty significant if you are running a company. And you're also thinking about your investment portfolio as well, because these um, regulations, which are not yet real regulations, will likely get more significant. They'll become more concrete. Businesses will have to report and disclose where they are on these measures. And therefore, investors will be more informed and therefore be able to make better decisions about these things and the, and, and the impact of the uh, of the work that you or, or the relationship that you found will become simply more visible to everybody. Indeed, yes. So that uh, now that multiple scenarios. I will, the the what I would say from a from a corporate decision maker's standpoint, it's very important that corporations get on top of this topic that begins at the board. I mean, this is not a topic that, as a large company, you want to outsource <coughs> to some sustainability. A uh, person somewhere down in the hierarchy. This is a board level topic. I also should emphasize that the way to think about biodiversity is not only by the direct negative impact that a company has. 
financial institutions, for example, are massively affected by this because they are financing other companies that have a direct impact. And what we've learned from the climate area is that not only so-called scope one activities, where you have a direct impact, but everything up to the scope three, where the supply chain really matters, everything is considered and should be considered. And I expect this to happen faster in the case of biodiversity than it happened with climate, because we've learned what the cost of waiting can be. And so for my recommendation for companies, I mean, of course, it's my own research, so I'm interested in it, but I, I genuinely believe that it's very important for, for companies to take stock of their activities, be aware of what is their risk exposure, and try to start how how are we going to disclose this, how are we going to mitigate it, what are actions that we can take uh, to deal with this. This is really absolutely essential now. It is. Um, I have um, sustainability as part of my executive responsibilities at the company that I, I work for, along a number of other things. And it is interesting to see how it's how it's come into the conversation. So I would say, and we're at the beginning of 2024 now, so probably the beginning of last year, maybe the kind of certainly the first half of last year, we were starting to work out what our impact was on biodiversity. And thankfully it's not significant. So that has I should imagine that if you have, you know, I have an excellent kind of ESG team that that are kind of very ahead of the game in terms of the things that they need to be thinking about. But I think a lot of companies that are serious about these types of issues will already be thinking about it. I think that the potential problem is, and we see this with our suppliers when we're trying to work out our scope three emissions and we ask our suppliers to help us understand what their positions are, we get a varied response. So, so you can see in the market that some companies take it really seriously and they are a market leader, but typically, and this is, I'm talking about climate now, not biodiversity and you know, CO2 emissions and, and the impact of that. Typically people are not with it yet in a, in a sense. So this is a new topic that's coming along that's clearly related to, to carbon emissions and CO2 impact that will take a few years for organizations to get their arms around and really work out what's going on and take it seriously. Because yeah, it's easy. I can imagine a, a board saying or a CEO saying, can you just explain to me why I'm thinking about biodiversity. Can you just explain why that's important? I mean, it's very important for you to, to be able to have that question in a corporate sense. And I think our, our kind of work can help uh, those conversations a little bit. I mean, Sometimes my experience with board members is also, uh, to be frank, that the one thing that matters is when regulation is actually in place. Uh, so France has put the regulation. So they have an article that already now requires financial institutions to disclose what is the biodiversity impact of their investment. So they kind of ran pretty fast on this. Now companies are scrambling to measure. Um, and so some for some companies... Uh, Effectively, regulation is the only way to get them to move. But I'd say to the other companies, then, well, you can have a head start. And, and this is, this can turn into a, um, a disaster in terms of business, but it can also be an opportunity and to do something reasonably good for the world. In addition, I mean, I'm you know, not a tree green, uh, tree hugger myself per se, but I think if a company can do both, address the risks for themselves and do something for the real world that is beneficial. I think that's that's something one should definitely look at. Professor Wagner, this has been a really interesting, fascinating, multifaceted conversation that we have had today. Are there any kind of key messages or, or, or final points you'd like to make for our listeners? So thank you, first of all, Ian, for, for this uh, great conversation. It's, it's great to have uh, a chance to talk with an intelligent uh, communication partner here. And, and even though we have different backgrounds, it's, it's very, very cool in that sense. Uh, second, I think the one takeaway, which I would encourage listeners to, to think about uh, whether they see that also in the real world, is the financial market can be our friend. Right, financial market or financial markets, they provide information to us. Stock price moves are not just some sort of random up and down, or you know, they're not just a reflection of somebody gaining and somebody losing and speculation, but they, they actually 
have information for policymakers, for companies, for us as, as individuals. And so uh, that's why after all these years, I'm still fascinated by financial markets because they actually are uh, a, a great source of um, information. Um, and, and then second, I think um, I do want to take the opportunity, if I may, that I'm, I'm always eager to have uh, feedback from people in the real world and, and sort of get prompted to think about this or that. You asked at the very beginning, Ian, the question of, well, how do you come up with research ideas? I think I've explained a little bit how the different ones came about here. Um, but uh, to the listeners who are somewhat interested by what I, what I said, I'd be very happy to hear from you uh, if you have ideas that need to be looked at with the angle that I can offer. Thank you again, Ian. Thank you. I think when I started this podcast, I don't think I imagined I'd ever have one where I'd be talking about Donald Trump, COVID and biodiversity in the same episode. So that just proves how diverse and interesting your research really is. So Professor Wagner, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.